Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. So open up Revelation chapter 11, please. And we started in chapter 11 and talked about the two witnesses uh, last week. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in chapter 11 that we didn't look at, so I just want us to go back over to chapter 11. I might be kind of jumping around in the notes. Uh, and you know, we don't want to finish it all this week. We'll finish it next week for sure. I think we'll finish it this week. Um, so let's look at chapter 11. And let me just read verses 1 through 14 right now. You just need to, it's, there's not really anything difficult to understand in these verses, uh, or, or especially difficult to understand. But I want you to have this story in your mind and in your hearts as we, as we turn to God's Word. So let's look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship him. Leave out the court and pay attention to what he's told to measure and what he's told not to measure. Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship him. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, which is the same as 42 months, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. I talked about all that last week. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire, so like Moses and Elijah. When they have finished their testimony, so they have a time for their testimony. We talked about that last week. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. By the way, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but when we're really... We're talking about power evangelism on Sunday. And when we're really preaching the gospel, it's going to torment people. It's not all just, you know, yeah, marshmallows and drink crackers. <laughs> but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet. And, of course, great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So that's the end of the sixth trumpet, which is the second woe. So I want to begin by talking about this measuring exercise that we read about here in verses 1 and 2. He's given a measuring rod, and he says that it's like a staff. So, you know, it's like a yardstick. And, uh, of course, it wouldn't look like our yardstick. It was just a stick. And the stick was cut to a certain measure and used uh, for measuring. And so when he's setting to measure out uh, uh, the temple, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that the temple does not at the time that John wrote this, at the time of his revelation, the temple had already been destroyed for over 20 years. So the temple actually is not standing. The physical temple is not standing in Jerusalem. So he's told to measure a temple that isn't there. So just hold on to that thought because we're going to see the same thing with Elijah. 
uh, I'm sorry, with uh, Ezekiel. And he's told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, we've talked about this already, uh, but I'm going to tell you again, I have no idea if the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem or not. That is a popular way to interpret prophecy, and I like that way. I'm perfectly happy if it is rebuilt. We don't have to interpret it that way, because in every place where the temple is being referred to, it is a spiritual temple. It is the house of God, and we are the house of God. And the very two witnesses, we already talked about this, we are the two witnesses. I do believe, and it seems real clear to me, that there will be actually two humans, two men, who will be the leaders of this, you know, revival movement or whatever you want to call it in our, in our modern day uh, vocabulary, but uh, that the whole church is involved in this because they are two lampstands. And it's very clear that, that when we put that together with Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 9 through 11, that, and, and that this is the regrafting in of the Jews into the family of God, okay? And that this, these are Jews and Gentiles together as the house of God, the temple of God. Remember, they, when are, they are regrafted in, what Paul talks about, that's not them coming over to our side. When we got saved, we went over to their side. We got grafted into the olive tree. We became branches on the true vine. That's just them coming back home. So, of course, it's going to be referred to not as a church, but as a temple, okay? Uh, and that, I'm not saying the temple won't be rebuilt there. It may very well be rebuilt there, but it doesn't necessarily have to be for the scripture to be uh, fulfilled. And, and in any case, we'll see very clearly today that even if the physical temple is rebuilt there, that's not what this is talking about, okay? Uh, because there is a Jerusalem below and there is a Jerusalem above. And we already see how Jesus refers in this revelation to the Jerusalem that is below because he calls it Sodom in Egypt. So that's not what he is talking about here, okay? And nothing I'm saying should ever be construed in any anti-Semitic way or we don't need to pray for the people. I think you know me well enough, but we need to understand it's clear. These are Jews writing this, you know, and Paul writing this, but it's just the, the truth. So he's told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. It's also it's just as important for us to notice here that he's told not to measure the outer court. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. So if you don't have an understanding of what the temple is, there's probably the back of your Bible a little diagram of the temple, but the outer court is the major part of the temple. The temple itself is a much smaller part, and when people went to the temple, they didn't go into the temple itself, into the inner court. They stayed in the outer court and worshipped in the outer court. Jesus, in his ministry on earth and in his lifetime on earth, never went into the inner court. He was all, when it says he was in the temple, he was in the outer court because that only the priest could go into the inner court. Okay? Uh, so go with me over to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. Why, why do you measure things? Well, why would somebody survey their property? Yeah, they want to establish their ownership over this. So when we see these measuring things, that's Remember the, 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 the book with the seven seals? That it's a book of redemption. It's a property deed. And this is following that same thing. God is delineating his property. It's the same thing as saying he's putting his seal in the forehead of his servants. He's saying, these are mine and these are not mine. Okay? That's the measuring thing here. So says, where are you going? He said, to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, and said to him, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declare the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory of her midst. That's never happened in history. It's speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 6, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. 
For I have dispersed you. You see the division? You see the divorce? Flee from that land. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. And that's, as we go through Revelation, that's, that thing's going to become stronger. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's why John was told to measure the inner court and those who worship in the temple. Because they, we, are the apple of his eye. We are the pupil of his eyeball. And nobody touches the apple of his eye. You see, it says redemption. He's saying, these are mine. He's drawing a bloodline around me. These are mine. Nobody could touch those two witnesses for three and a half years until God said, okay, now as a part of my plan, I will allow them to kill you, just as Jesus went to the cross. But it was God's plan, not Satan's plan. Okay? That's really important for us to understand in our lives as we're living our lives every day uh, today. So if we go back to Ezekiel 40, I'm not going to have you do it because it's eight chapters and we can't read all of that. But if you want to, you can read it. And it's, it's difficult reading because there's lots of numbers in there and everything. But as you read through all the numbers, all of a sudden there's, there's some revelation. But Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, right after chapter 38 and 39 are done, the God and Magog part, chapter 37 about the dry bones uh, part, you know, all these things about Israel. Chapters 40 through 48, the very end of the book, all he's doing is measuring Jerusalem. The same exact thing. And, but he's not given the rock. Uh, an angel, which perhaps is even uh, Jesus when you read it, uh, is measuring uh, the outer court first, then he measures the inner court, then he measures the entire city. And the thing that's really interesting about that is at the time that Ezekiel has that vision, which is 25 years after he was taken into captivity, the dates are given right there. 25 years he's been in captivity. And uh, as the, the Jewish rabbis believe, that that was the last jubilee year that, the, that Israel ever celebrated, that very year when Ezekiel did that. And so when he's doing this, he goes up into a high mountain, and uh, it, it says that he sees this city of Jerusalem, and he sees the temple. But when you read that, you have to understand it doesn't exist physically at the time he's seeing this because it was already destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And so what he's seeing is in the spirit. What he's seeing is the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem uh, below. And so he's told to measure the outer court, the inner, or, or he, he witnesses how the outer court, the inner court, and uh, the city uh, are all uh, measured there. But here's something interesting. Uh, the outer court is measured by Ezekiel, or by the angel during the time of Ezekiel. But in the time of Revelation, John is told to not measure the outer court. So what does that mean? Well, it's really simple. This is what it means. The outer court will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is finished. So that means that God is going to go with the Old Testament measurements when it comes to the Gentiles, when it comes to the nations that reject Jesus Christ, when it comes to the enemies of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's going to go with the same measurements that he had in the Old Testament. But when it comes to those who worship, there's something new, a new testament. And it's made up not just of Jews, but of Jew and Gentile. And so there have to be new measurements for the New Testament but for those who want to live according to God's law, for those who reject the word of God, for those who come against him, then they're still facing the same measurements, the same judgment of the, the Old Testament. And so John is told not to measure that. Now go with me just for a minute over to Revelation, Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. So those measurements are in Ezekiel 40 through 48, but twice... Ezekiel measures the temple. So this is a real, I don't know if you knew this, but what we read in Revelation is, a, that's already the fourth time that we see this in the Bible. So if you go over to Ezekiel chapter 8, 
Ezekiel chapter 8, he measures the temple another time, the first time. And when he measures it the first time, uh, we read, and let's just read verses 3 through 6. You can read it all if you want. In fact, Ezekiel's, uh, Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, uh, if you've never read that, good to go home and read it. I remember the first time that I read these chapters, I think I was in high school, I was really young, and it, it almost scared me. It, I'm just telling you, it's very powerful stuff. And if you'll read that today, you will realize the kind of abominations that exist in the religious world and in churches and the things why Jesus is cleansing his temple. So in this first one, in Ezekiel chapter 8, he's seen the Jerusalem that's below. He's seen the temple that is below. At the time of Jerusalem, uh, the Ezekiel chapter 8, I'm sorry, uh, there's, he's only been in captivity for six years. And the temple actually has not been destroyed yet. So he sees in a vision way across from Babylon, he sees over to there to Jerusalem, and he sees the actual physical temple. And he sees a lot of terrible things. And it says... In uh, verse 3, it says, uh, he stretched, if you, you can read the whole thing, but the, the angel comes, and he's like Jesus. He stretched out the form of a hand, and he caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. It's really important, that division, that divorce between earth and heaven. Lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes the jealousy, was located. So there's idolatry in the temple. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw on the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes towards the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, right here in my house. They are committing abominations. Now this is prophetic of Jesus going into the temple and cleansing the temple and declaring that this is the house of my father. It must be a house of prayer, a house of communication with God, a house where people meet God, a house where people are touched by the presence of God. And it should be for all nations, not just for the Jews. So they're committing abominations there. And then he says, but for me it's the most amazing. There's two most amazing parts. One is when he just grabs him by the hair and lifts him up and takes him between heaven and earth. And the other is what he says right here. This is why they're doing it. So that I would be far from my sanctuary. But yet you will see still greater abominations. So why are they committing abominations in the house of God? Because they don't want God in the house of God. They'd rather have Jesus standing on that side of the door and knocking. They don't want the Holy Spirit in the house of God. They don't want it to come face to face with God. Did the children of Israel want to come face to face with God? No, they refused. They saw the fire. They saw the power of the mountain on Mount Sinai. And they cried out to Moses, stop this or we're going to die. Originally, God actually invited them all. But nobody wanted to go into the presence of God. And Moses would go alone into the presence of God, except for a little footnote that said, Joshua, the son of Nun, his servant, would hang out there with him too, and would even stay later when Moses was there, because he was learning the presence of God. And nobody else in the entire nation would go into the, into the, uh, the meeting place with God and would meet them. Only Moses. They don't want God in church, so they commit abominations to keep him out of church. Like a kid keeping his room really messed up so mom will never come in and check anything out. You know, just we just talk, I just don't want God in the church. And that's it. And it says in uh, verse 12 uh, that they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Uh, and, and so they commit abominations pretending that God doesn't even see them because things are so bad, we'll just make them worse. And then it says in verse 17, uh, that they have filled the land with violence, and they have promoted, provoked me repeatedly. It would not be difficult at all to take these words that are in these chapters and apply them to, ch to the church of the Lord Jesus in the United States of America today. And we should do that, because God's calling us 
to a place of repentance. So Ezekiel has measured that temple. Now, if you read through those chapters, so what I want you to see is that he measured the temple twice. But the first time he measures Jerusalem below Sodom and Egypt. And the second time, he has a vision of Jerusalem above. You know what I'm saying? And, and they're completely different. And when he sees Jerusalem above, if you were to actually take the time, which I have not, I just read this in commentaries, <laughs> you would actually take the time and add up all the numbers, because there's lots of numbers in there, put all those measurements together, and everything's measured by a cubit plus a man's hand. So a cubit is from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, okay? And they say it's about 18 inches. I measured mine today to see it was 23, so they obviously didn't use my arm uh, for the cubit. But they would measure from here to the tip of the hand. It's like a foot. It's a, it got standardized for them. That's a cubit. And then in, uh, but the, but in Ezekiel 40, it says they used a measuring line that was a cubit plus another man's hand. And that sounds like, well, that, that's, that's just some detail that doesn't matter. But it's not. It's showing us that everything's going to a different dimension. That, that Jerusalem that is above. Or could I just say the people that God has called us to be as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is completely different from the people that we are. We've been talking about the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh with all our talents, with all the great things. You know, Jerusalem that was on the earth was and is a great city, but it's nothing to be compared to uh, the original Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem in heaven. And so this is nothing to be compared. And if you were to add up all those numbers, all those cubits they put in there, you would realize the two things. Number one, that it's huge to quote Donald Trump. I mean, huge. So huge that it's disproportionately huge. In fact, the city that Ezekiel describes would be impossible to put, be put on the, the Temple Mount that is actually there physically. Because he's not seeing the Jerusalem that's below, but the Jerusalem that is above. Go with me to Revelation 21. We'll get to this much later. Hopefully not too much later. Uh, but Revelation 21, verse 7. Um, uh, let's see, verse 17. So Revelation 21, beginning with verse 10, describes the new Jerusalem. I'm not going to get into that tonight because we'll get into it later. But also with measurements, okay? And, but when it gets to verse 17, it says, And he measured its wall. My Bible says 72 yards, but that's wrong uh, because the numbers are actually very significant here. It's 144 cubits. He measured its wall 144 cubits according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And that's not a verse just to be thrown by the wayside. That's huge. <laughs> okay? Because... Human measurements are not angelic measurements, okay? But in verse 17, it says that when, that what it's saying is not that the angels change their measurements to make them like ours, but that God is taking us up to a new measurement, taking us up to a new dimension. No, and we have that already in our lives. No, if we, if we choose to walk in it, I mean, just a simple thing like that, that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues. Uh, it says that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, you know, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, there are angelic tongues, tongues that are of a different measurement. Of a different, it says that we do not know how to pray as we ought. And so the Spirit helps us with our weaknesses and prays for us with groanings that are too deep for words. There are no human words to put to that because human measurements are not angelic measurements. Okay? But in verse 17, it says, now human measurements are the same as angelic measurements. So that's kind of probably a lot of information, but that's, uh, in a nutshell, what we really need to, to get out of this. So it's measured separately. Uh, uh, it's... Uh, God's guard is put around that. If you were to go through Ezekiel, you would see that there are guards set around the inner court to protect it. It's the apple of his eye. Look with me at Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43. Z 
Ezekiel 43 and verse 1, which is in that section of Ezekiel that's dealing with the measurements of the New Jerusalem. Ezekiel 43, verse 1, it says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. By the way, let me add something here. Many people, we know from ancient writings, that many, and we know from the Bible, that many people thought that what Ezekiel saw and recorded, because Ezekiel was a really famous prophet in his day. And they all would have read this and known this. And he was a spectacular prophet that did weird things that drew attention because God told him to do it, lay on his side for a long time, and stuff like that. And uh, many people thought when Zerubbabel, okay, Zechariah, was rebuilding the temple, they compared it to the Temple of Solomon. And they said, this, this place is lousy. We thought it was going to be better. Because we read what Ezekiel said, we thought it was going to be better. And we'll get to Zechariah, I think, tonight, here in just a couple of minutes. But, but that's not why God gave this vision to uh, Ezekiel. Because nothing we have on this earth can compare to all that, that, that the Lord has prepared for us. The Bible says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard. That, that he has revealed those things to us by his spirit. And we can walk in the heavenly here on this earth. It says in Colossians that we should be walking in the heavenly places together with Christ Jesus because we are seated there together with him. So in Ezekiel 43 verse 1 says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. Uh, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. So he came to destroy the first time. But now he's coming again. Okay? This is, this is messianic. It's speaking of the coming of the Messiah. And it talks about two comings. Uh, he came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river of Kibar. And I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So this is Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's coming to establish the glory of God in the temple. And this may apply to a physical temple being rebuilt. It may not. But whether it is rebuilt or not, it does apply to all of us. It applies to the body of Christ. Because, you know, the temple never was the building. The temple is always the people. And God's promise is that I will live in you and that you will be my temple. The, the temple, of, in fact, the Bible says our bodies, our physical bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, at the end of chapter 11, uh, not chapter 11, but in verse 14, we read that the second woe is past. And behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So let me just give you a heads up, and I think we might get to this time, might not. But the third woe is the seventh trumpet, okay? And it comes immediately here. The beginning of it is right here in chapter 11. So the seventh trumpet is when Jesus comes back, okay? And uh, as we already have seen with the sixth trumpet, that doesn't mean that the trumpet lasts for only one second or something. There's a period of the sixth trumpet, and there's a period of the seventh trumpet, because Jesus comes back at the seventh trumpet. So what do we have happening right as the seventh trumpet sounds? We have two witnesses who are dead, laying in the street. People are rejoicing over this. Everyone in the world sees this, which up until modern times would have seemed impossible, but now, of course, it's possible. Everybody will watch it on their cell phones. You know, everybody will see everything. And for whatever reasons, people, they've tormented the earth so bad. Can you imagine the gospel torments people that bad? They so don't want to repent when God's giving them good news and giving them a chance for salvation. But the torment is so bad for them that when they're dead and the beast kills them, they just rejoice over it. It's like Christmas. They're sending presents to each other. Uh, the beast wins cards to each other and all this kind of stuff. They're just rejoicing. And suddenly, while they're watching it on their screens, uh, 
you know, heaven opens up, and the breath of God, the Spirit of God, comes into them, and they stand up. They're alive. And then they're raptured. So what do we have? Resurrection and rapture. When? As the seventh trumpet sounds. At the last trumpet. Okay? It's everywhere in the scripture. I don't know how anybody ever got the idea that there would be a rapture seven years before this happens. Because the time period is set out exactly for us. They are resurrected first, and then they are raptured. Just exactly what Paul said. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him in the air. And it says clearly that they go up into heaven in the cloud. Exactly what Paul wrote also in the cloud of glory. So here's some just some interesting things about that. Look up with me at Luke 21, 24. I don't want to skip over anything. We'll finish it next week. We'll finish it next week. But Luke 21, verse 24. Um, just this one verse I'll read here. Luke 21, verse 24. And this is uh, in Luke's record of Jesus' teaching concerning the last days. Luke 21, 24. It says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and will be led captive into all the nations in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Okay? And then in Revelation 11, verse 2, it says, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations or to the Gentiles, and they will tread or trample underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And then notice that the Lord, although he calls that city Sodom and Egypt, he also calls it holy, okay? Because it is his holy city. But because of their unfaithfulness and because of their idolatries, the things that we read about in this first vision that Ezekiel has, because they don't want God to draw near to them, because they don't think God sees what they're doing. The holy city has become a Sodom and in Egypt. Okay? And that can be true for any local church or any Christian, any person who turns away. It doesn't mean that he's not chosen. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan, but he's turned away from the Lord. So it's called the Holy City. And it says that for 42 months it will be trampled underfoot. So listen real carefully to this. Okay? In 167 BC, so approximately 162 years before Jesus was born because he wasn't born at zero, he was born about 4 or 5 BC, his main state of the calendars. Uh, that's true. Um, the calendars they came up with a thousand years later. And, you know, they didn't have computers like we do. Um, but in 167 BC begins the Hasmonean dynasty. And this is the story of the Maccabees, okay, which is in the Apocrypha, you could read it. And from 167 B.C. to 37 B.C., so for 130 years, the Jews ruled Jerusalem. But in 37 B.C., 37 B.C., we have Julius Caesar. Okay? And from the time of Caesar and the time of Herod, who's just a puppet for Caesar, okay? lots of puppets these days they got back then, uh, from 37 B.C. until 1967 A.D., right? So that's 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, the Jews never ruled over Jerusalem. Never. For 2,000 years. That's a huge amount of time. But God's prophecy and his promise came true. And in 1967, almost by accident, because on the face of it, Israel should have lost that war. And definitely should not have taken Jerusalem. But in 1967, Israel took Jerusalem and made Jerusalem its capital, which it is to this day. And America has recognized that now. But whether America recognized it or not, they recognized it and said Jerusalem is the capital of, of Israel. That happened in 1967. So, like all prophecies, there are different fulfillments of it. So there's already been a certain fulfillment of the time of the Gentiles coming to an end. The time of the Gentiles came to an end on the first level of this prophecy in 1967. That happened in my lifetime. It happened in the lifetime of many. 
true, I was only three years old, but my mind was two, but it happened in my lifetime. And you know, it has to mean something that Jesus said, this generation will not pass away. I mean, you know, that is a sign stronger than anything else that Jesus is coming back very soon. We should not ignore that sign. However, in Revelation 11, it's told us that they will trample underfoot the holy city for 242 months. Now, if you were reading this in the first century, when John wrote that, you would have the temptation to say, what are you talking about, John? Jerusalem's been trampled underfoot now, uh, you know, since 37 BC, for already over 100 years it's been trampled underfoot. And especially since 30 years ago, they destroyed the temple. I mean, it's completely trampled underfoot right now. How could it be for only 42 months? See, actually, this word about 42 months would have been so mysterious, so not able to understand up until 1967. And suddenly, it makes sense that there's coming a beast, there's coming an antichrist, he is the beast, and he will take control over the outer court, whatever that ends up being. But it means he will not have control over the people of God who have the seal of God in their forehead. And there will be an inner court that will be protected by a ring of God's protection around that inner court. They will be the apple of his eye, and they will not be touched. And if anyone tries to do them harm, they will be put to death by the fire that comes out of their mouth. And as I said last week, that may mean in some instances that people physically die by the word that's preached. It's there in the book of Acts. It could also mean, and I, for me personally, I think this would be better, that their old man dies and they get born again. You know, but they're not going to hurt the church. The safest thing you can do as a Christian today is to get radical for Jesus. The safest thing that you can do is let the Holy Spirit move in your life. It's not to compromise with this world, because this world's going down. Okay? The outer court's going to live by the measurements of the Old Testament. But God has a New Testament measurement for us today to walk in and, and to live in. And he gives the measure. He had the Spirit without measure. That's what the Bible says. But Jesus gives the Spirit to us according to a measure. And he gives to each one of us his gifts, study it out, according to a measure. And every one of us are different, but when we come together, we are the body of Christ, and we have the Spirit without measure. Because Jesus is in here. That is a vision for Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship that it would be a body of believers that is just Jesus in Yarrington, that has the Spirit without measure. That there are healings, there are blind eyes open, somebody's getting raised from the dead. Right? We haven't got to it yet in Acts, but we're going to see this real strong in Paul's ministry. They're taking handkerchiefs off of his body and laying them on sick people, and they get healed. And not because he's you know, a popular televangelist making a bunch of money. In fact, he's not. But because the Spirit is moving without measure in their presence. Because they are the body of Christ, they are walking in unity and in love, and they are devoted to prayer. And they are together as one. So these are the pictures that we see here in Revelation. We have to see as we read this, and you can read it over and over again, you're going to keep getting more out of it, but see that we are these two witnesses. Okay? This is talking about the body of Christ. Now I'm going to end with this just because of time. I wanted to go to some more stuff. It's okay. This is what the Lord wants you to hear about. And this, I'm, I'm honest. This, the Holy Spirit is telling me to stop right here. So don't muddy the waters with anything else. We have to hear this and think this way. Um, I keep wanting to hurry and keep saying, I've got plenty of time. Um, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And verse 11. So Romans 11, 11, which is a part of a, a, a whole teaching from 9 through 11. Uh, it says, I say then, they, speaking about the Jews, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, are you, are you following Paul's logic here? <coughs> How much more will their fulfillment be? 
that I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Paul's a Jew, and he's speaking to Gentiles of Rome. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Now listen to this. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, remember we're already seeing this in Acts, how God tells Paul to reject the Jews and turn to the Gentiles now. Because they rejected me, I reject them. But never does Paul ever say they're rejected forever. In fact, he says the complete opposite. And so he says, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? How anybody ever thought that we were all going to get raptured up to heaven before the Jews get grafted back in? I don't know. And it's happening in Israel right now, but it's just a drop in the bucket. We're going to see it happening. Can you imagine when these two witnesses are in Jerusalem? We're going to see it happening so powerfully. Jews being grafted back into their native olive tree, into their native vine. Because you and I, and this may sound to people in the world that they heard this, or listen to this, I'm not racist, but you and I are Jews. I'm not appropriating another culture. Jesus appropriated it for me. He made us one new man. He made us a part of the house of Israel. They're not going to come over to our side. It's we that got to go over to their side by the grace of God. And they're going to come back in, Paul says. So their rejection is reconciliation, but their acceptance is life from the dead. The resurrection won't happen until Israel comes back in. It comes at the seventh trumpet. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. And then look at verse 25. Verse 25. It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. I think we need to hear that today. I do. I really do. We're just ignorant about so many things, and we get all puffed up with pride about things that mean nothing to God. So you will not be wise in your own estimation. He says, A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, who will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And a lot of people, some people, they read that and they think that that, God, that, that means that every person who was born physically Jewish at any point in time is going to be saved. That's obviously not true. Judas Iscariot is not saved. The Bible tells us that clearly, okay? And salvation is always by faith. And many Jews reject, but what he is saying, this is much more important for us, that in that day, all of Israel, who is really Israel, and he also explains that not everybody calls themselves Israel, is Israel, but who is really Israel, they will be saved. There will be a multitude of Jewish people who will be saved in that day, who are Israel, who are waiting for their Messiah, and they don't see him, and they don't know him today. And like I've already given, you know, you've heard testimonies, I can give you testimonies of thousands of Jews in Israel today coming to their Messiah and being saved, because now it's not the Gentiles preaching to them, but their own Jewish brothers and sisters are preaching the gospel to them. And it's, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. A, a very powerful thing. And we're going to see that happening more and more. But he says here that the fullness of the Gentiles has to come in first. Not that long ago, I think I told you this, but I heard a Jewish preacher preaching an evangelist in Israel who's a Jew and born and raised in Israel. He's an Israeli citizen. He doesn't, he might speak some English, but well, he spoke English in, in the video, that's true, but his English you know, is kind of broken. And, you know, Hebrew is his, his native language. And he, he read this and he said, you know, the fullness of the Gentiles has basically already come in. And, you know, it's really true. There is not one Gentile nation on this earth where the gospel has not already been preached. You say, well, what about China? Oh, man, the gospel has been preached in China. What about Korea? Well, it's been preached all over Korea. What about India? Where they, 
It's been preached and is being preached all over India today. We're so ignorant of what God's doing in other nations. But the gospel has been preached in every Gentile nation of the world already. And, as you can tell by looking at our own culture, not a whole lot of Gentiles are getting saved these days. It's slowing down. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be preaching to them, but Jesus is getting ready to come back. And the, the Gentiles have a time period. There's a time period. And they will choose to be either sheep nations or goat nations. And the goat nations are the ones who reject Jesus. And he will divide the sheep from the goats. And he will judge them in his coming. And, you know, it's like the, the wheat and the tares. It's not always obvious when it starts growing. But when the fruit comes forth later in the time of harvest, then it's seen. So there's not time for us just to play around with God. Uh, it's, it's time for us to be very serious about what's happening in our world and in our nation and choose which side we are on. Come out of Babylon and be holy and completely dedicated to the Lord. So let's end over there in Revelation 11. In Revelation 11. Um, uh, the last thing I mentioned, so we can move on to the seventh trumpet next time. It says, in that hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth of the city uh, fell. Verse 13, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, this is speaking about that city. Which city? The city is Jerusalem. He says it's called Sodom and it's called Egypt. Next week I'll go into reasons, scriptural reasons for why it's called that. And I want to show you more clearly the difference between the, the, the Jerusalem that's below and the Jerusalem that's above. It's really important. And we'll do the seventh trumpet next week, okay, also. So there's more I need to say along those lines. But when it's talking about the rest gave glory to, God, to the God of heaven, this is talking about the Jews. And it says in Zechariah that they will look on him whom they have pierced. So this is the time when the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heaven, the time of the seventh trumpet. This is really the end of the chronological uh, period of the book of Revelation, except for there are seven bowls that come inside of the seventh trumpet. And then there are several other things that are given to us that are shared, that are kind of like different scenes that are shown to us so that we can understand things better. But chronologically, this is coming from the seventh seal. And so there's this great earthquake, and it says 7,000 people uh, were killed in the earthquake. Well, it doesn't really say 7,000 people in the original Greek. In the Greek, it says 7,000 names, okay? And that's very important because the numbers are symbolic. It's not talking about the number of people that's 7,000. It's talking about families. Names are families, okay? 7,000 families die in this earthquake. So what it's talking about is God's judgment. And you can compare this at some of time to the Old Testament when the ground opens up and swallows Korah and all those people that were with him. This is that God's made the division between Gentiles, between the apple of his eye and the hour of war. These divisions and divorces are all over the book of Revelation. And now he's dividing Israel, okay? These are the Israelites. These are the Jews who have rejected me, you know, who do not receive me. And, it's, and it says that these families are removed by this great earthquake. They are destroyed. And all the other families, a complete number, seven speaks of a complete number, thousand, you know, speaks of a multitude. All these other families, that, that's the part you should focus on in this verse, not the number that die. But the fact that all the other Israelites give glory to God. And that is unique in the book of Revelation. Because throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen it over and over again. It says that nobody repents anyway. And still nobody repents. But suddenly, all of Israel is saved, just as Paul promised that that would happen, as God promised through Paul. Amen? So let's, let's stand together and uh, hold on to those thoughts as best you can, study other scriptures. And really, you'll get so much out of it if you take the notes home and read through these, these, these places in, in the Bible. I really want to encourage you to read Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11. It's, it's powerful stuff. And it's just a call to repentance. Uh, let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you do see us and that you do want to be near to us. And you want to be 
part of our lives, chiefly that we would be a part of your life, that we would be in that which belongs to our Father, that we would be in the middle of your will for our lives, Lord. And I just pray that prayer, continue to pray that prayer for the Harrington Vineyard Fellowship, that this would be a house of prayer for every nation, that this would be a place where the Spirit of God is poured out upon all flesh, that is encompass about the city of refuge, the apple of your eye, that nobody can touch, but that we're not hungering down in some basement here, but fire comes out of our mouths as we preach the word of God. And your, your gospel is preached, and people's lives are changed through this church, Lord. Let us be these two witnesses, Lord. Let us be prepared for these days that are coming, that are coming very soon upon the earth, Lord. Let us be prepared that when these 42 months come, when this three and a half years comes, Lord, that we would meet that with joy, we would meet that with excitement, that if we were to pass away uh, before that time would happen, that we'd get up to heaven and say, oh man, God, I wanted to be there for that, Lord. But these are exciting times. It's a time of great persecution, time of many difficulties, but it's you know, really... The, the greatest day for the church of Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about, that you're coming again soon, Lord. So I pray that we would live that way today with our eyes focused on the heavenly Jerusalem. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvinyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.